chapter 131 of A History of England. I'm David Beeson. The way we left things last time, Gladstone's Liberal government was staggering towards its end. It was being helped on its way by a newly reinvigorated Disraeli who had regained control of the Conservative Party and launched himself and his followers into action against the Liberals. Lots of things were beginning to go wrong for Gladstone. Take, for instance, his relations with the Queen. They weren't too bad initially. She was disappointed, it's true, when she had to appoint him Prime Minister in place of Disraeli, but that wasn't yet an indication of preference for the Conservatives, which she certainly developed later. It was more a symptom of a resistance to change which had made her always favour the incumbent over a newcomer in all the previous elections in her reign. She decided she had to bite the bullet and learn to get on with Gladstone. But they started very early to rub each other up the wrong way. For instance, she disliked the Irish Church Bill. She disliked the freeing of Fenian prisoners, and she let him know. But Gladstone was determined to see both measures through. Gladstone didn't like the way the Queen's first cousin, the Duke of Cambridge, commander-in-chief of the army, was opposing the government's reforms in the military, above all the right to buy commissions as officers, and he let her know. She was initially open to the reforms until she realised how opposed were men like the cousin Gladstone had criticised so angrily, and most of the rest of the officer corps. Then there was another royal event that turned out painful for Gladstone, after the 30-year-old Prince of Wales, the future Edward VII, fell sick with typhoid. Two others who'd contracted the disease with him died, but in what looked like a miraculous coincidence, he took a distinct turn for the better on the 14th of December 1871, the 10th anniversary of his father's death from the same disease. In February 1872, a Thanksgiving service at St Paul's Cathedral in London followed his full recovery. In a display of how their popularity was diverging, Disraeli was cheered as he entered the cathedral, but Gladstone was met by silence and some booing. This service, incidentally, marked a turning point for the Queen, too. Afterwards, she began at last to return to public life, after having withdrawn almost completely for the ten years she'd been mourning Prince Albert's death. Despite his growing unpopularity, not just with the Queen, but, as his greeting at St Paul's had shown, with the public generally, Gladstone battled on. It was, for instance, in that same year, 1872, that he drove legislation through Parliament to require secret ballots in local and parliamentary elections. That, by the way, was an idea he'd been against initially. He felt people should vote with their heads held high, and that it was slightly sneaky to vote in secret. But, once convinced that voters needed protection from people who might otherwise try to pressurise them, he became a determined partisan of the measure against forceful opposition. It was in this deteriorating atmosphere that Gladstone turned his attention once more to Ireland. After church disestablishment and the Land Act, he decided that the final leg of his tripod of measures would be setting up a Catholic university in Dublin. This rather shocked even people on his own side, notably the Marquis of Hartington, whom he'd obliged to go to Ireland as chief secretary. Hartington favoured looking first at nationalising the Irish railways or reforming local government, but Gladstone was set on the idea of a university. 
He called 10 cabinet meetings at the back end of 1872 and six more at the start of 1873, throwing himself into the task of having his colleagues adopt the idea in much the same way as he had with the land bill. But the circumstances had changed. Even his doctor was warning him that his phenomenal work rate was beginning to undermine his health. Eventually, he presented the proposal to Parliament. As was always his custom, he'd put in hours of work to ensure he'd mastered his brief and his speech revealed his depth of understanding of the issue. But it ended sadly, or worse still, risibly. Universities must be free to teach any subject they consider valuable, but he wanted to prevent the Catholic University in Ireland covering subjects he felt might create awkwardness for the country's Protestant rulers. Here's an extract of the account of his speech from Hansard, the official record of parliamentary debates. It can have no chair in theology, and we have arrived at the conclusion that the most safe and prudent course we can adopt is to preclude the university from the establishment of chairs in two other subjects, which, however important in themselves in an educational point of view, would be likely to give rise to hopeless contention. The two subjects to which I refer are philosophy and modern history. To that, Hansard adds the single word in square brackets, laughter. That recalls the entirely appropriate response the Commons gave the idea of government restrictions on the subjects a university might teach. When the hugely influential Cardinal Archbishop of Dublin, Paul Cullen, denounced the proposal, Disraeli smelt blood. He rallied his forces and at 2am on the 12th of March 1873 triumphed as 68 Irish MPs joined his band of opponents to the bill, leading to its defeat by 287 votes to 284. Gladstone had declared that the measure would be a question of confidence in the government. The cabinet met and agreed with him that the defeat therefore meant it was time to resign. The prospect of some respite after so much pressure must have tempered Gladstone's disappointment at the fall of his government. The Queen accepted his resignation. She turned to Disraeli to form a government instead. That was when he revealed what a smart political operative he'd become. He said no. It may seem odd that a leading politician should turn down the chance to form a government but Disraeli was playing his cards cleverly. He didn't want to form yet another minority administration, and let's not forget that the Liberals still had a majority in the Commons. The Conservatives had won 13 by-elections, elections in single constituencies caused by the vacating of a parliamentary seat, perhaps by the death of the MP or by his moving to the Lords, in the previous two years. But Disraeli wasn't sure yet that they could decisively win a general election. On the other hand, he felt that with some more months of weakened, divided government, the Liberals would prepare the ground for him to win the kind of victory he really wanted. Now Gladstone paid the price for falling out with the Queen. She went along with Disraeli's ploy and accepted his refusal of the premiership. Gladstone found himself having to pick up the burden again, and go back into government for a while longer. That wasn't going to work out well for him. Later in 1873, a scandal hit the government. 
there had been no serious misdeed on its part. Some funds had been misallocated to the telegraph service, but there was no question of any being embezzled. Gladstone, however, felt that he had to respond by moving people around in his government, so that those even tangentially touched by the matter left their old responsibilities for new ones. In addition, the resignation of one minister left him with a vacancy to fill. He moved Robert Lowe, previously his Chancellor of the Exchequer, to the Home Office. Next, rather than appoint a new man as Chancellor, he decided that since he'd filled that post so successfully in the past, he'd take it on himself, in addition to his duties as Prime Minister. That was a bold decision by a man exhausted to the point of worrying his physician. Besides, as Roy Jenkins points out in his biography of Gladstone, while he was a man of vision in other areas, as soon as he got stuck into the nitty-gritty of financial management, he turned into something of a penny-pinching cost-cutter. His big idea as Chancellor was to abolish income tax, something that would benefit the middle class but few other people, and would indeed require some expenditure cuts in other departments, notably the Army and the Navy. That led to significant disagreements in Cabinet, with the War Office and Admiralty adamantly opposed to further cuts. There was also a political implication to his taking on the Chancellorship. From 1707 to 1926, an MP who accepted a position as a minister was deemed to have vacated his parliamentary seat and had to contest it again in a by-election. Now, as Prime Minister, Gladstone already had a government post, but by taking up an additional appointment as Chancellor of the Exchequer, was he under an obligation to fight his seat again? Some lawyers felt that he did indeed have to recontest his seat, others that he didn't. It wasn't an insignificant matter. The convention was that other parties wouldn't contest this kind of by-election, allowing the newly appointed minister to be re-elected unopposed. But that wasn't going to be the case in this instance. The Conservatives would run against Gladstone, and there was a serious risk that he would lose the seat. A Prime Minister unseated? That would be unthinkable. Such was the position when 1874 opened. 1872 had been a difficult year for Disraeli, above all because of the death of his much-loved wife and soulmate, twelve years his senior and overwhelmed by cancer. But 1873 had been far better, with his great rival Gladstone defeated in the Commons and forced to stay in office while reeling from blow after blow. Now, on the 23rd of January 1874, still rebuilding his life after losing Mary Anne, Disraeli was in London looking for new accommodation before returning to his home in Buckinghamshire. Then, to his astonishment, he read in the Times that Parliament was about to be dissolved and a new election called. Gladstone was putting an end to the controversy about a by-election in his own seat by calling a general election instead in every seat. He'd stolen a march on Disraeli, using the Times to publish an election address focused principally on the abolition of income tax. Disraeli abandoned his plans to head home and spent the weekend working with his chief assistant preparing their answer. The fight was on. Disraeli felt he was at last in a position to win. His decision to refuse the premiership the previous March had paid off. The government had sunk further into discredit and exhaustion. What's more, by making income tax abolition his central pledge, 
Gladstone had put himself in a position where he was fighting an election on ground unfavourable to him. That was once again a case of Gladstone losing his sense of vision when he got wrapped up in financial issues. Abolition of income tax was, as we said before, a measure that only benefited the middle classes and the wealthy who were liable to pay the tax. Focusing on that promise while offering little or nothing in the way of further reforming zeal elsewhere meant that, in the words of one radical journalist, Mr Gladstone has sacrificed the lower classes who worshipped him to the richer classes who disliked him. The electorate took its revenge. At the general election, the Liberals ended up suffering the catastrophic loss of 145 seats compared to 1868. The Conservatives gained 79 seats to take 350 in the new Parliament, a comfortable majority of 48. Pause to absorb that last piece of information. This was the first time the Conservatives had won a majority in Parliament since Peel had led them to victory in 1841. That's 33 years earlier. In the 28 years from 1846, when Peel's decision to repeal the Corn Laws had split the Conservatives, they had lost every election to the Whigs and their successors, the Liberals. They had formed governments three times, but always as a minority, and fallen from power soon afterwards. At last, they had a working majority in the Commons again. Disraeli could form a government with a good chance of surviving a reasonable time and achieving some success. We'll find out next week how he responded to his victory. Meanwhile, a third force had appeared in Parliament, the Home Rule League, demanding a much greater say in the government of its own country, had appeared in Ireland and won 60 of the 101 seats there. They were doubtless helped by the Ballot Act, since the secret ballot protected tenants against retribution by landlords angered by votes cast against their favoured candidates. Above all, though, they showed that the Irish were building a voice of their own, outside the Liberal Party, and not dependent on a British organisation to speak for them. Pacifying Ireland? Far from achieving that lofty goal, Gladstone had presided over the appearance of a movement ready to challenge British rule and ready to challenge his own party. Whether or not his intentions were good, by the end of his government, his achievements had only led to deepened resentment and hardened resistance amongst the Irish. That's the age-old story of British rule in Ireland. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 